Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Charles Camosi to our podcast. Charlie is an Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University in New York City. He is staunchly pro-life and has written extensively on a wide variety of social issues, a number of which we will discuss today. You may recognize Charlie's voice or even his face as he has been interviewed many times on radio and television, both on the local and national levels. Charlie Camosi, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Hi, Joe. As a... uh... As a fan of your podcast, it's an honor to be with you. It's an honor to be with you. I hope I can, I hope I can uh, re, uh, be, meet the bar that your other guests have, have met. Well, maybe the bar for the other guests, but it's if, if you if you knew me well, it certainly wouldn't be an honor to say you knew me. But uh, I'll make sure my wife and daughter hear you say that. Yes, let so, them hear that. Let them hear that. It's all good. So, Charlie, this is your your first time, maybe not your last, uh, on our on our podcast. And I hope not. I, and as we do with all of our new guests, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience, including your your present position at Fordham. Well, I was raised by that Notre Dame family, and um, so it was kind of always expected that I would go there, pounded into me. In fact, my, my mom met my dad on a train going to see Notre Dame play Alabama in the Sugar Bowl in 1972. So I ended up studying philosophy at Notre Dame. And uh, philosophy of religion, in fact, did a year of grad school in California, decided it wasn't for me, decided I wanted to watch more Notre Dame football. So I went back to get my master's degree <laughs> at Notre Dame in theology, um, ostensibly because I wanted to study theology. Really, I just wanted to hang out with my friends who were still there and watch football. Actually, can you get me in? I've never seen a football game at, oh my at Notre Dame Stadium. Yes. Can you get me in? Yeah. If, if you get me on the podcast again, I will get you into a, a, a Notre Dame football game. Um, that's a deal. That's a deal. And, uh, and, and got the masters and kind of looked around and didn't know what else to do. I was, uh, I was not happy with, um, the kind of graduate school experience I had. I really didn't feel like I was studying the right things. So I grew up in Wisconsin. I went back to Wisconsin and took a job, uh, saw a job and applied for it and got, um, communications director of pro-life Wisconsin, uh, affiliate of American life league. And the first, um, I was also uh, helping with some of the lobby. And the first bill we worked on was AB 808. I still remember it to this day. It was uh, 1999, I think, 2000. And it was the aborted baby body parts bill that we were trying to ban in Wisconsin way back then. And obviously, that's expanded even more now. Um, but but I, I got the itch to teach over time and got the opportunity to teach high school theology in Waukesha, Wisconsin, Catholic Memorial High School. Spent three years teaching there, and, and I taught a class um, to juniors called Social Justice and Medical Ethics, second semester uh, course for juniors, and absolutely fell in love with it, fell in love with it, and thought, and the, the church's teaching in both Catholic social teaching and bioethics, the intersection of that is like where I wanted to live. And, and uh, so I wanted to go back and do more of this. And so I went back to all places, Notre Dame again for a third time. People make fun of me for that. <laughs> Uh, triple domer, right? But but here I had really instead of going for football games, um, I was going for real, and I I, I uh, wrote a dissertation on um, uh, essentially neonatal bioethics. I rounded with neonatal teams around the country, even a few overseas, and uh, wrote a dissertation on related to that. 
And, uh, that actually put me in a pretty good place to get a decent job out of, out of grad school. And, um, ended up getting hired at Fordham to do bioethics and moral theology. And, um, it's been, it's been great. Uh, the, the, the capacity to work, the ability to work in New York city when you want to do very serious, both very serious academic work as I've done, but also public work, um, with media and activism has been nothing short of extraordinary. And I've sort of tried to carve my own path there and, and, and really felt God's providence in many, many ways and, and been very, very lucky to be able to do what I love. Great. Excellent. I'd, uh, being a former college professor myself, I'd like to get your, your take or your comment on the state of Catholic higher education today. Now I know that's a really, really broad question, but if I could maybe parse it down a little bit, maybe we'll have a little conversation. How would you respond to people, particularly parents who may ask you, Charlie, where can one pursue a post-secondary education that's faithfully grounded in the Catholic intellectual tradition? Where can you do that today? Not many places. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was my experience as well. Yeah. Not many places. As you know, I don't need to tell you higher education in general is in serious trouble there, uh, or most probably 80 to 90% of places, um, is in serious trouble. There's structural pressure, the student loan system, the kind of ideology, the pressures on academic freedom, thinking about, uh, you know, the out of control costs, um, and, and then the competition is absolutely fierce for students, absolutely fierce. And a number of schools are falling by the wayside and others are having to cut back pretty dramatically. Um, and so Catholic schools are uh, obviously part of this um, scenario here. And some of them are handling it well. Like there are some who are um, really pushing their identity as distinctive, right? Which are, which is... Hey, this is a really competitive landscape. You come here, we're different. We're 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 you you come here, you're going to get a serious um, education, but you're going to get it within the context of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Others are moving in a different direction. Like a Wheeling Jesuit University is no longer Wheeling Jesuit; it's just Wheeling because they've gutted their liberal arts and their philosophy and theology. And so the Jesuits said, "We wish you well, but we really can't." lend our name to your institution anymore. And and the reason for this was not necessarily anti-Jesuit or anti-Catholic. It was, it was, you know, economic from their perspective is how do we handle the economic pressures? Well, we'll, we'll keep the majors that have, that are moneymakers for us essentially. And so there, we're really at a crossroads of Catholic education and that's good and bad. It's bad because, um, some of these schools are falling by the wayside, but I think, and I hope, and I hope this isn't just a Pollyannish kind of hope, but I hope Catholic education, educational institutions look around at the landscape, see the writing on the wall and say, if we're just like every other school, we're probably not going to be in a good situation five to 10, 15, 20 years down the road. If on the other hand, we embrace the Catholic intellectual tradition, which is not censorious. It's not, it's in fact, very much consistent with academic freedom with, I mean, I love to point out to my students, you know, we just flip through his summa online and we see him starting with his opponent's arguments. I mean, this is this is the thinker for Catholic education, starting with the best arguments he can think of against his position. And, and I'm so proud of that Catholic intellectual tradition. I try to get it across to my students. And if, if we can embrace that, if we can say that this is who we are, that we don't need to choose between 
you know, being uh, authentically Catholic, but also being just very, very serious about the intellectual project, the academic project. I think we can really fill a huge gap that's going to open itself up, especially as ideology and let's face it, wokeism starts to dominate. Uh, we, we, we could fill that, but I, I, I am worried that too many of our institutions are moving more in the direction of where can we cut and, um, and how can we, you know, essentially make the most money via the programs that we currently have in place. That's a short term um, approach. I think if we take the long vision, we'll be in a much better place. Do you think there are schools that are willing to do that and and I or to take that long term approach and and I ask that question I, I just I'm coming from my own context where I was at a school that essentially I, I called it a Kino college it was Catholic in name only and doing all the things that you just talked about to try to quote unquote survive and in their effort to survive their Catholic identity is essentially just wasted away and. And, and I, le I left back in 2015, so it's been about five or six years now since then. But I, I see, I saw exactly what you're, you're saying. And I'm wondering, are, but are schools willing to, are they willing to make that commitment? Uh, remember that old uh, eight ball you used to shake and things would come <laughs> up, right? Like, I think signs point, signs point to no was one of the, was one of the possibilities. Um, probably signs point to no in, in a, a large percentage of cases. Um, but I will go back to the hope. And again, I hope it's not Pollyannish, but um, the, again, there's gonna, there is already this, um, I think the pandemic and actually so much of what happened during the pandemic, which disrupted education on all levels, um, has people really thinking creatively, the creative destruction that the pandemic wrought um, or makes space for at least the destruction that the pandemic wrought makes space for a kind of creativity in response to it, especially with technology. Like there's this very interesting superintendent of schools in the Boston archdiocese who's just created a school out of nothing essentially, which is faithful to the church's teaching um, Catholic school when many of his archdiocese are not. Right. I wonder if there's an analogy to make about higher education there. Could we think creatively about being totally academically serious, being, you know, um, Aquinas-esque and are taking on the best arguments uh, seriously and giving them their due, um, but then using maybe technology or creative thinking to build our own new institutions, for instance. Um, there was a time in this country, 19th century-ish, where people thought in that way. Like, if you didn't, if it wasn't there, you built it yourself. Um, uh, and I just, maybe it's naive, but either institutions themselves will change to fill that gap or there will be new institutions to fill that gap. Somebody will fill that gap. I hope it's right. Catholic education. Yeah. All right. So for the first time of probably multiple times in this podcast, we're going to change topics. So uh, I want to talk uh, about your pro-life work uh, in, in three areas. First one is uh, the book you wrote back in uh, 2015 called Beyond the Abortion Wars, a way forward for a new generation. Can you talk about that and, and kind of introduce the book for for those who may not have uh, may not have read it? Yeah. Well, it does actually go back to my being that high school teacher at Catholic Memorial in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Actually, I got to interrupt you for that because it's really funny, Charlie. Because I used to teach at Catholic Memorial High School in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And your your rise through high school into the you know grad school, it's it's very similar. It's it's like that's almost scary that the, what I'm hearing here. But but anyway, I just had to I just had to put that in there. I don't want to get us off track, but I don't know if you had this experience. I, I I'm very fortunate to have the job I do, but. 
there was no community like a really good Catholic high school community, right? Like it was just the teachers that I was teaching with had master's degrees. They were very serious, you know, they were, but they were not, um, you know, academics. They were interested in teaching. It was just really vibrant. Um, but yeah, so, so I really enjoyed teaching those juniors a class again that I mentioned before called social justice and medical ethics. And, and it was teaching them together, actually third quarter, we teach social justice and fourth quarter, we teach medical ethics, we teach them back to back. And that really helped me and my students. Um, I still tell my students at the end of every semester, we, we teachers learn more from you than you learn from us every semester. And I was, that's true. And you'll learn how to teach in high school as well. That's where you learn how to teach. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you learn how to teach well, you learn how to learn from your students too. And, um, absolutely. And I learned that you don't need to choose between social justice and, um, being authentically pro-life, uh, within bioethics. And that would eventually be the subject of my dissertation and a lot of my future work, but it certainly shows up in this book, uh, beyond the abortion wars because, well, I'm, I'm just frustrated in general with the left right debate. And, um, I, I think it's largely incoherent. It's, it wasn't very coherent even in the early eighties when we, when we developed these lines, it's totally incoherent now, but it's never more incoherent than it is in the abortion debate. So you have at least, I mean, I think things are in the process of changing, but for most of my life being aware of these things, we had the party of small government, government staying out of our lives, telling us rightly, in my view, we need a big intrusive government to protect prenatal justice. And we're going to be in your business to protect babies from violence in some of your most intimate business. In fact, uh, in the interest of prenatal justice, um, that sounds to me more like a leftist position of energetic government position, a pro uh, anti-violence position, a looking around for the structures, which oppress the vulnerable position, which again, for most of my, I think things are in the process of changing now, but, and it's not clear where, where we'll end up. But for most of my life, that was the position of the quote unquote left. But the folks on the left in the abortion debate for still today and for for most of my adult life um, had a libertarian position. In fact, I'm almost a far right government stay out of my life. No one get between, uh, you know, a patient and their doctor. Autonomy, 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 autonomy again. Autonomy is the answer to everything. (laughs) And not like nothing that's sophisticated, like just straight up no chaser individual autonomy. That doesn't work. None of that works. It's it's but that's the way the the discourse was and is to, to a certain extent still is. But, but I, I wrote the book in 2015 or it was published in 2015. And I do think there are some things changing now, but the book essentially lays out a case that says we don't need to choose between a right and a left position on this issue to the extent that there is a right left divide. We end up choosing between sides, quote unquote, that support women um, and sides that want to protect the the child. And there's no reason to choose that at all. We need to be equally vigorous. In fact, I get pretty annoyed on either side where we imagine the child is somehow disconnected from the mother as much as I love, you know, ultrasounds and pictures of babies to acknowledge that uh, reality. It's, it is kind of strange. It's, it separates the child from the mother in ways that just don't, aren't true biologically speaking. Also, uh, if you see, you know, obviously the pictures of the mother and you talk about the mother apart from the baby, you've missed something just absolutely essential about this unique relationship. And so what I end up arguing for at the end of the book after making the case is something called the Mother and Prenatal Child Protection Act, where 
it combine the proposal combines you know legal protections for the baby and just really really robust supports for the mother and at the time i would have said this there really is no political home for this position but more and more and i don't know what you think about this or others think about this i see the quote unquote right or quote unquote republicans again these are just really imprecise markers and i'm not sure even what they refer to but people who identify this way being more comfortable with this kind of approach you know i think there are there are i know there are folks who identify as conservative or, or more on the right, who are getting more and more comfortable with these social supports. And and so I guess, I mean, I, there were more arguments in that book, but that was the basic thrust of what I was up to. Yeah. I noticed you've used, and I, I, you used this term in your answer just now, and I've heard you use it in other places, the term prenatal justice. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of pull that out a little bit and, and what exactly, where did that come from? And, and what do you, I think we know what you mean by it, but give us a little context for the use of that term. Yeah. Well, I, I recently started using it and if there's somebody else that's using it, I, I don't know that they are, I haven't heard that they are, and it's quite possible that they are, but I started, I've been using it for maybe the last year and a half or so. And I used it in my open letter to Pope Francis, where I was asking him, uh, to apply his very strong, he has an incredibly strong view of prenatal justice where even where he, he connects uh, abortion to hiring a hitman or right. calls it a white glove Nazi crime. That's just totally hardcore. Uh, but, but it's, but it's, but it's not upfront really in his, in his magisterium so far. And so I, I wrote this open letter asking him to put prenatal justice at the center and, and prenatal justice, I think is really evocative, especially in our current context, because racial justice is so centric. Uh, center of our life, of our political life, of our hopefully our ecclesial life, um, of our of public discourse, and um, and what racial you know what the term racial justice obviously calls to mind is our obligations, right? Like justice is what's owed to a particular population and or individual, but in this case, population. And so, if we're going to think about justice in the context of prenatal human beings, prenates. Um, I'm thinking, I'm trying to be evocative and with, especially with folks who aren't traditionally quote unquote on our side in these way, in these terms to, to start thinking that way. Like what do we owe prenatal populations? If we owe um, other vulnerable populations, certain protections, certain supports, then it, it's not so easy to just say abortion is, you know, one issue among many, or let's only support women. Let's not, you know, protect and support prenatal children. Um, if there's a justice issue for a population that is being systemically uh, denied their right to life and and support of their lives, that's systemically being discarded and is part of a throwaway culture, then then we have to reorient our whole lives. Like I mean, that's the point of racial justice, right? Is we have to think about our structures, we have to think about our lives, we have to think about our culture in in giving a a, a marginalized population what they are owed. Similarly. I would I would say something very very similar about uh, prenatal justice. We have to we, this is this is a marginal classically marginalized population that we have to reorient our, reorient reorient our whole culture um, to address the wrongs that are done and and to give this population what they are owed. Wow, great answer, love that. All right, so we talked about uh, beyond the abortion wars. Second element of your pro life work I like to talk about a bit is your work with the Archdiocese of New York. Tell us about that. Well, for reasons I haven't fully been able to put together, Cardinal Dolan is a fan of my work, and um, 
He's he on our board too. <laughs> but I haven't uh, met him yet. I've only been here for three years. I haven't met him. At one point I have to meet him, but I think, uh, I, I think it might be that I'm able to, I, even though I grew up in Wisconsin, my mom grew up in Illinois. So I actually raised us Cubs fans and he's, he's an old time Cardinals fan going back to his time in St. Louis. And so I don't know how many of your listeners know about the Cardinals Cubs rivalry, but, um, I, I'm able to good naturedly rib him from time to time about that. So maybe that's why he put me on his pro-life advisory board. That's mainly how I've come to serve the archdiocese. And, um, and we do lots and lots of interesting things important from my perspective, very important things. One of the things we're working on right now is we've, we essentially did a kind of um, audit of the curriculum of the Catholic schools in the archdiocese and the pro-life aspect is just pathetic, just awful, just terrible. And so the sisters of life and Catherine Lopez and a few of others on the board are really working hard to create a curriculum that we can be proud of pro-life curriculum that we can be proud of in our schools. And I would just say parenthetically, there's a huge opening here too for Catholic education, right? Like the pandemic, um, has really shown, I mean, has revealed what institutions are willing to work for the good of children and, and, and students and, and which are not Catholic schools have almost universally come out on the side of being on the side of children. Thank God. Um, but what are we going to do with this moment? That's another, that's another really important thing. And also you combine that with the kind of wokeism and the, the ideology that's being forced on our students and on, on our, our families. Um, a lot of people are looking around for alternatives. Catholic education can be the, a, a really important alternative, but again, I think we need to meet the moment. We need to be creative and we need to, and we need to be creative specifically when it comes to this kind of pro-life curriculum, the stuff we, you know, done before is sometimes good, sometimes bad, but there's an opportunity here, especially when we connect it to things like we don't need to choose between the social justice part of the church and the pro-life part of the church. If we can combine, if what wouldn't it be great to have a curriculum that, that showed connections between racial justice and prenatal justice, for instance, wouldn't that be something that we could give to the world and give to our students and challenge them and, and open them to the fullness of the church's teaching on these things? Anyway, that was kind of a, uh, that's not what you asked about, but, um, no, it is. We're wondering what what is the you know what is your work with the Archdiocese of New York, and if it's you know bringing that pro life, um, bringing that pro life message, bringing that into the curriculum. I, I mean, that's central. I mean, it, it's it's getting young people, um, you know, teaching them the truth and, and actually catechizing them so they're not catechized by the culture. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a heavy lift, um, <laughs> but 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 we're working on it, and and we have a pastor um, and shepherd who's 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 interested in that and and whose time he was also another connection we have is I actually taught his niece when I was at Catholic Memorial. He was, he was arch, um, he was the archbishop uh, of Milwaukee before he came to uh, mm-hmm. uh, New York too. And so we, we got to know each other a little bit through that. But, um, but the other issue that, that we've been working on really is, is physician assisted suicide. Um, I helped put together a video that we sent to basically every, every parish in, in the archdiocese trying to, Trying to help, um, you know, message. Trying to help uh, support uh, resistance to physician-assisted suicide. Um, and I just have to say, you know, maybe some of your listeners would even be surprised that it hasn't been legalized yet in New York, right? Because a big right. blue state, liberal yeah. state, Massachusetts too, my home, Massachusetts state. too, Connecticut it's, too. Yep, yep. 
I think it's just fascinating to think about why Pennsylvania too, right? No, no assisted suicide. We don't have it, but New Jersey does. New Jersey does. Yeah. That's my, that's my, where I live. Uh, but it's interesting, but it took time. It wasn't, you know, uh, Oregon, California, all these places, they legalized it first. Um, uh, Washington. I think it's interesting to think about why these deep, deep blue states have resisted it as long as they have. Um, part of the reason I think, I mean, Massachusetts, this is back, what, 2011, 2010? It's, it's gone back a while. I've been, I, I, my wife and I left the state back, oh, late 90s. And, but, uh, but yeah, the, it, it, this goes back a while. The, the time I'm thinking of was there was a statewide referendum on it and it was up a ridiculous amount. It was like 20, 30 points. People were in favor. And then suddenly the church and the disability rights community and certain pers- um, um, perspectives in, in the medical community got their act together and started messaging on this and completely turned it around, like gained 20, 30 points in the opposite direction and like eked out a victory by like less than a point or two. And it was just such a beautiful moment. And, and, uh, I've thought a lot about that and like, what was that? What, what changed people's minds in, in, in deep, deep blue Massachusetts to, 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 to go against that. And so I'm, I'm thinking about the lessons learned from that in other places in New York. And I, and, um, you know, obviously the connection with disability is just such a huge part of this. And, um, I wonder if just as, you know, racial justice can be, um, you know, connected to more traditional pro-life activism and and arguments, um, and cases made for certain legislation or against certain legislation. Uh, you can also, um, bring to bear the kinds of insights that disability rights groups and anti-ableism groups have. Uh, I, I, I really think a lot of what we focus on actually is just so connected to anti-ableism that there's, I mean, well, this is a classic example of how we, we have these connections across pro-life and more social justice type approaches that just work, that they work, that they obviously work. Um, and, and so in, in places where, you know, the church's teaching, more traditional teaching on these things struggles to kind of manifest itself or even be heard. Right. Um, I just think this is a powerful strategy. So this is, this is what we're trying to do to limit. Uh, we're trying to, we're trying to essentially, you know, not invent, reinvent the wheel here, but keep, keep this kind of approach. And I, I think we're okay. I I think, I think we're going to be okay, but we don't know for sure, but, but it's, it's, it's tough sledding. Yeah, I hear you. As you were talking, I was thinking back uh, a, a couple of podcasts ago. We did a two-part interview with Stephanie Gray Connors, and she just wrote a book. Um, uh, I'm just I'm drawing a blank on the name. Um, ask uh, asking why, um, and it, it was ten principles for countering assisted suicide. And she talked about the, really a lot of what you were talking about. She she gave stories of people from the disabled community and, and really demonstrated how these laws legalizing assisted suicide really affect this population in a very disproportionate way. And when you tell those stories, people kind of stand up and go, wow. And, and I think that that's what you're talking about here too. So uh, maybe Stephanie could be helpful uh, <laughs> for your efforts in New totally. York as well too. Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the third uh, element of, the, of your, your pro-life work that I, I really wanted to hear about was your work uh, with Democrats for Life. And then um, fairly recently, a, a, a rather public split. And uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, if, if you've listened to the whole podcast thus far, God bless you, first of all. But um, <laughs> if you, you already know that I have some leanings towards, you know, what might be considered the left. I don't like these terms, but, um, you know, again, energetic government protecting the most vulnerable from violence, um, suspicion of powerful people using personal autonomy to sort of um, advocate for their own points of view without caring about those on the margins. I mean, <laughs> if you just hear those words, you think, well, that's a leftist, right? So, but it, but it just fits so well with what the church's teaching is on, on these very important life issues. And so again, for most of my life, I was like looking at the, oppor- the, the, um, really, I think pretty pathetic political options available to me, but, um, I guess I'm, I guess I'm more on this side than the other one. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try a third of Democrats identify as pro-life, you know, the, the original pro-lifers were also, um, anti, anti-Vietnam war activists. There's this great book called defenders of the unborn, which is a great history by Daniel K. Williams of the pro-life movement. And he, he tells stories about how the, um, some of the early pro-life, um, uh, 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 protests and, 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 and meetings would see very left looking, uh, radicals burning their birth certificates. Well, why were they burning their birth certificates? Well, they were burning their birth certificates out of the same kind of stance as those that were burning their draft cards. This was a, this was a government document that was offensive and, um, denied human dignity. And so what, a I mean, I just love that image, but so, so, I, so I, I have these uh, because, of course, birth certificates. Like, why does that? Why does the government get to decide that you're you matter at birth? That's that's totally arbitrary, um, especially historically, as infanticide and abortion were basically considered the same thing for for much of human history. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I just thought that's where I belong, so I'll try to work there. Um, and we did do some good things, and there still are good people at Democrats for Life, but. Um, and they have a new energetic young president um, who's doing some very good and interesting work. But during the last presidential election cycle, the only hope I really had was that maybe Pete Buttigieg would have a kind of more moderate point of view. He had that reputation. He was, you know, that's what he was trying to send. And then he, when, when even he went as far abortion permissive or even abortion cheerleader as you could go, I was just basically like, why, what am I even doing over here? What is this thing that we're trying to do here? When, when no one, no one on, on this list of, of possible candidates is even close, not even like a moderate who's willing to be complicated on the issue. Um, much less, you know, pro-life and, uh, you know, it's different at the state level. There's, there's lots of interesting things happening at the state level. Um, governor bell Edwards of Louisiana is an absolute pro-life hero in my view. Um, and he's a Democrat too, is he not? Total Democrat. Yep. Like, like expanded Medicaid, you know, was oh, very much about racial justice, you know, workers first, all that stuff. 
but he's extremely pro-life. I think he signed their very, very, I don't know exactly what weak gestation it is, but they have a very, very, um, very, very good uh, cutoff for abortion. We'll, it'll be interesting to see how all these do at the Supreme Court if they ever get there. But um, but anyway, uh, I just decided at the national level, at least, that I really was wasting my time. And um, and uh, and so I, I, I still don't have at least the way the Republican party was for most of my life, I still don't think it's the home. I, in fact, I think we get taken advantage of there all the time by people who want our money and want our votes. But when it comes time to really, really give us what we want, fail uh, a lot. In fact, uh, I think it's telling that at the end of the Trump administration, Planned Parenthood was actually more flush with cash than they were at the beginning. So, like, so I, so I'm trying to take the the medium to long term view and say there's this great party called the American Solidarity Party that is very, very, very it's not perfect. No party will be perfect, but it's very, very much in line with Catholic teaching across a range of these issues. I will say though that the Republican Party of the last, you know, year or two has been moving again, as I mentioned earlier, in some directions that are more in line with the fullness of the teaching of the church on these matters. And to the extent that they could do that, I, you know, I find that very interesting. If they could become the party of the working class, the party of the little guy, the party of using government to um, change structures, to favor those in the margins. um, That is a party I could get behind. They're still not there. They're still not even really close to there, but, but they're, They've at least opened the door for something like that. But for now, I'm 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 trying to support the American Solidarity Party because I, I, I that's a party I can actually support rather than kind of just hold my nose and be around. Interesting. We could have we could have ongoing conversations about this stuff, but but do want to move on to uh, change gears once again. So, uh, Charlie, you've been very active in both academic and public circles with regard to a whole host of issues. So end-of-life issues, disability issues, as you mentioned, nursing home-related issues, COVID-19 issues. You started talking about that a little bit. What caused you to begin addressing these maybe more practical topics? Well, um, the pandemic was obviously really (laughs) central for this. and it just so happened I was I I sent out a, a book manuscript for peer review right before the pandemic hit. And I was focusing on how the secularization of medicine and medical ethics has left has left the cupboard bare for re, moral re, and legal resources available to us to defend fundamental metaphysical human equality, like the uh, equality at a fundamental level, the level of nature or kind. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I conclude, I concluded the manuscript by focusing on dementia and disability issues. And especially as they related to quote unquote, end of life issues or euthanasia and said, you know, I actually highlighted the views of Peter Singer here who said, um, quite consistently, you know, once you've said that it's not a shared human nature, which matters, which he thinks is speciesist, then you're, then you're in the realm of like just determining which kind of human beings has the, have the right traits. And, 
if it's something like rationality or self-awareness or volition or something along those lines, then there are times where at the end of life where human beings are perfectly functional as organisms, but have lost what's morally relevant mm-hmm. about themselves. They are, they're biologically alive, but not alive biographically, he says. Um, and we already do that. He rightly says when it comes to so-called brain death or, you know, an abortion with prenatal human beings, but he's pushed us, as you know, on infanticide to say, again, the, the birth, the, the, you know, birth canal is arbitrary when it comes to just the organism involved. And also it's arbitrary at the end of life. Like why? Okay. So you have a functioning human organism, but we've already said that functioning human organisms that give birth to children, if they're brain dead, right. Don't count like the same as us. In fact, we can, they're legally dead supposedly. Right. Um, so, so something he says is similar about people at the, um, who've, who have late stage dementia have lost the morally relevant traits. They, they're, they might be biologically alive, but they're not alive biographically. In fact, they may not even be aware of their biography. They might not be aware of their themselves or the people around them. And so I, I finished the book by saying, this is where we're headed. Um, we, we will, if we will eventually apply this view consistently as we continue to secularize and medicine will drive it, the medicine and medical ethics field will drive it as they have driven the other examples, uh, you know, abortion and brain death and PBS. And even I think the whole Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, I have a chapter in the new book on, on that, uh, is, is pushing in that direction as well. Uh, little did I know that this pandemic would come and just basically, I think the book went from, predictive to descriptive during the pandemic because you look around and you say well what what are the who are the people who are most hard hit by this pandemic it's people who are suffering from dementia in nursing homes that's the groups those are the groups of people who got hit the hardest not only because they were vulnerable in nursing homes but also there was there's a politico did a really important investigation of the so-called quote-unquote excess deaths i hate that term but that's what they use of um people with dementia who didn't get COVID-19 versus the summer they, they, they did this, they did a study of this summer versus the summer before the pandemic. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands more people with dementia who died this summer than compared to last summer. And part of that is, well, we, I mean, we don't, we can probably just do the math on it and figure out why. I mean, it was just, uh, we, the, the, the shutdowns were horrible. If you have dementia, the worst thing to do is to, you know, be alone and isolated and have no connection with people. But, but it, those were the those were the populations that we just basically didn't care about that we that that were left in many cases to die by the thousands. And then there were also the examples of how when we thought about using scarce medical resources, especially when we didn't really understand what was good for people, like ventilators. There was the whole discussion, as 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 you know, I'm sure your center is more than aware of. Oh yeah. Uh, um, oh yes. Uh, in fact, you had this. You had Roger Severino on your podcast recently, who was at the center of a lot of these yep. debates as head of the Office of Civil Rights at HHS. I really commend that podcast to your listeners if you haven't already haven't already read it. But he did some great work calling out uh, states that were dis- um, you know that were uh, discriminated against the disabled in terms of deciding who might get um, ventilators or other limited uh, medical resources. But there were some terrible, terrible uh, state. Uh, level uh, just totally ableist going back to that term ableist uh, approaches to these things thank god for people like roger willing to stand in the breach and hold them to account it's really sad that he's not where where he is anymore but anyway this is a long answer but the 
that's where it came from. So I was already kind of like attuned to these, this family of issues as it were. And then the pandemic just kind of put it into overdrive. Wow. Huh. That's interesting. And and you're right. As, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking about these issues and yeah, the, the, the pandemic has really put a spotlight on these issues. Um, in a way that we didn't have before, because I think what we're seeing, the, I mean, on a whole number of different levels, the pandemic is really uh, affecting people who are, you know, you figure 70s and up and and a lot of people who are in these populations. Um, so, yeah, I, I do want to, before moving on, I want to ask you a question about COVID-19. I mean, you live in the, you said you lived in New Jersey, but I assume you're in the New York City, the metro New York City area. Give us a little bit of a of an overview how how hard were new york city new jersey hit particularly in the spring of 2020 by by the covid-19 pandemic and and what's the situation now well um in part because so much of the national media is present in our area of the country we <laughs> we got a lot of attention um about you know the first parts of the pandemic really hitting hard here and um so maybe your listeners are aware of the fact that we really got hit bad um, in the spring of 2020. I mean, it was, you know, the refrigerator truck backed up to the hospital was kind of a right. meme, right, for yep. what was going on. And it was hard. It was really, really hard. And lots of people were afraid. And rightly so. I mean, it was really, really bad. Uh, but but it didn't have to be as bad as it was. Um, we uh, in New Jersey uh, Connecticut and New York kind of created a, 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 a tag team or something of, of just trying to get our policies together. Uh, so we didn't have, you know, th with, with three states that were so interconnected in so many ways, we didn't have three different, uh, you know, policies. And one of the policies that they came up with was to put COVID positive patients into nursing homes after they were in the hospital. And I'm, I would imagine a very large majority of your listeners are already aware of this. And mm -hmm. it, Governor Cuomo right now, it's, but it's, it's in some ways it's unfortunate that it's only him that's being taken to task for this. Because uh, uh, Governor Murphy in New Jersey, I think maybe even in Pennsylvania, was a similar thing happened. Connecticut happened. Michigan happened. Uh, California happened. So um, this was a really bad decision on so many levels, just on so many levels. We and 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 the reason why it happened, I think um, it's pretty obvious, is people that hold power in medicine didn't want COVID positive patients in the hospitals. They wanted them out. Now, on the one hand, you can understand why that's the case, right? Because they were, in some cases, not not even close to all cases, but in some cases, they were worried about being overrun. So they wanted to create space, but. As you know, if you paid attention to the, you know, the the Mercy ship coming in, you know, to New York Harbor and like the Javits Center being totally refurbished and hundreds and hundreds of beds, maybe thousands available, you know, new beds created. There's even one in Central Park was created. Yeah. Um, none of those got used. <laughs> none of them got used. Uh, and yet we sent thousands and thousands and thousands of COVID positive patients to the worst place you could possibly send them back into nursing homes, right? Where the most, the most vulnerable patients were and where the least resources were, right? Like they didn't have access to the kind of PPE they had in hospitals. They didn't have the kind of staffing they had in hospitals. Staffing was already overwhelmed in those, uh, in those places. And then furthermore, the government incentivized them to take them by giving them even more money. So there was 
financial incentive to take them on top of everything. And so it was just a complete and utter disaster, a human catastrophe. And, uh, and, and, and now I think, I mean, there seems to be a federal investigation underway. There seems to be some attention being given this issue. Again, I hope it's not just governor Cuomo that takes the hit. I hope, um, others because, because what happened uh, at bottom was, and this gets into the focus of, of, of the book project I was working on during the time as well. There was a medical culture that advised the Cuomo administration and other administrations to do this that said these places can be dumping ground for COVID positive patients. And it's that kind of attitude that I think we need to call out and hold to account and, and, and to show the world, uh, you know, what kind of values undergirded that decision and never make the same mistake again. This concludes part one of our interview with Charlie Camosi. In part two, Charlie discusses how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected other social and pro-life related issues, including efforts to expand assisted suicide and our treatment of the elderly, particularly those with dementia. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.